When you think of wise people in the Bible, wise characters, who comes to mind? If you're like me, Solomon comes to mind first, right? He's the wise guy of the Old Testament. Then maybe Daniel. We think of the wise men from the East who followed the star, maybe Joseph. Now, I personally, I don't usually put David up in that list if you're talking to me about the top 10 wise people of the Bible. Um, I think it's easier to just sort of remember him as a king or a po poet or a warrior, the giant killer, right? But because of the great depth of his relationship with the Lord, he was a very wise man, incredibly wise. In fact, Solomon writes in Proverbs chapter 4 that David taught him the way of wisdom, that when Solomon was a boy, he says his dad instructed him according to all these great spiritual truths and that he's recording them for us. At some point in his old age, David wrote Psalm 37. We're not sure when. He just says, hey, I was young and now I'm old. And it's a very significant and very influential psalm as far as psalms go. It's quoted by Jesus Christ in his Sermon on the Mount. Solomon quotes this psalm in Proverbs 24. Peter references it in his first letter. It was a favorite passage of many historical Christians, men like John Wesley, David Livingstone, the prayer inscribed on, the plaque, uh, on a plaque in the Big Ben clock room references this psalm. It's a Jewish prayer that's said after meals. And even if you're not familiar with the psalm as a whole, you'll find very familiar phrases like, the meek shall inherit the earth, and he shall give you the desire of your heart in these verses. This psalm has been called a mirror of providence or a garment for the godly. And really, as we go through it, it's a well-balanced meal packed with nutrients for our spiritual lives. There's just a ton of stuff here. This psalm addresses the present. It anticipates the future. It gives us perspectives and directives. It speaks to our emotional lives. It speaks to our mindset. It speaks to our ambitions. It makes promises to us. It gives commands to us. It's really quite remarkable. It's classified as a wisdom psalm. Uh, if you're familiar with this, the book of Psalms, there's different types of psalms. There's messianic psalms, and there's thanksgiving psalms. There's psalms of lament. There's psalms called imprecatory psalms. This is a wisdom psalm. It's not a song of praise. It's not a song of thanksgiving or lament. This psalm is a very carefully written discourse. David didn't just jot this down quickly while he was out in a sheepfold somewhere. Some of his psalms, you, you get the impression from the way that it's written and the words that he uses is that, as you know, he's as a young man lying there with his sheep under the night sky, he, this song comes to mind and he sort of writes it down or he's in the cave somewhere on the run for his life and he writes down this psalm that comes to his heart. But this one is very carefully written. Scholars point out that this is one of the acrostic psalms. Psalm 119 is famous for being an acrostic psalm, each stanza starting with one of the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Well, this psalm is an acrostic psalm as well. Uh, they, every other line of this psalm in the Hebrew begins with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And scholars also point out that the psalm has an incredible symmetry as it unfolds. Each couplet that we see there has a partner couplet that mirrors it later in the song. If you get into commentaries or outlines of the psalm, you'll see that it has themes A through J, and then it goes backwards, J through A, and they all mirror each other. It's really interesting. And so it's not just academic, though. This psalm gives context and answers to many weighty real-life questions. Questions like, okay, what is God's will for my life as an individual? Or how can I live out my Christianity in a meaningful way today? 
Or that question that we may ask ourselves in more frustrating points of life, what good is it to live a godly life if all of this stuff is going on around me? You know, sometimes people ask, why do bad things happen to good people? Sometimes on the flip side, I think we probably wonder ourselves, why don't bad things happen to bad people? I don't know if you've ever wondered that, but uh, perhaps you have. These sort of big life questions are answered in Psalm 37, and it is directed to you and to me tonight. And it not just answers questions, but it also reveals God's intentions toward us. God's desire is to form you and I into bright, shining lights like the sun at high noon. That's what we'll be told in verse 6. It reminds us of what we read a few weeks ago there in Daniel 12. If you were here with us, we read that verse that says, those who are wise will shine as bright as the sky, and those who lead many to righteousness will shine like the stars. And so this is God's plan, uh, and this is one of the ways that he describes the work that he wants to do in the life of his uh, people. He wants to form us into bright, shining lights like stars in the sky. Psalm 37 declares it and describes how we participate in this work that the Lord is doing. And along the way, the godly are going to be dramatically contrasted with the wicked, those who do not follow the Lord or trust in Him. And those people can be so distracting to us at times. And so let's allow David to take us behind the curtain of all of this. And we start in verse 1. A Psalm of David, do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity. We're going to be told three times tonight, do not fret. David says, stop worrying, stop getting all worked up about evildoers. And you know, I think he was speaking as much to himself as he was to us, his readers. This is a theme that comes up in a lot of his Psalms. Uh, It bothered him to see wicked people, ungodly people prospering. And he would talk to the Lord a lot about it, at least in his Psalms. Like many of us, he had been prone to sort of look out there in the wider world and and maybe focus on the negative things, at least when it came to this issue. But here, uh, at the back end of his life, as the old professor, he tells us in no uncertain terms, he says, hey, listen, don't worry about that. Don't worry about the evildoers you see out there who may be prospering. And there's a lot of wisdom in what he's saying. I know I tend to be negative in my thinking, Perhaps some of you are the same way, maybe not. But if we are so given over to negative thinking and focusing on those sorts of distracting, just just bothersome things, how can we expect to be able to, say, sing praises in a dungeon? There are Paul and Silas and Philippi chained and beaten, oozing from their wounds in the stocks in the darkest dungeon. But what are they doing? They're singing hymns to God. You know, if I live my life in the negative, that just simply isn't going to happen. If my mind is running through this sort of perpetual motion machine of negative thinking and being bothered and being upset by things all the time, it's going to be hard for the, the uh, worshipful grace of God to break through because they're operating on different currents, right? We think about like alternating current, direct current. It matters which one you're using, depending on what you're plugged in, right? And so um, if we're always trapped in that negative mindset, well, we learn here in this psalm, it really draws out the fact that mindset really matters. We learn in the New Testament that we've been given the mind of Christ. We've been given a proper supernatural perspective on life. 
but we need to choose to use those things in our thinking if we want the benefits that we see described in this song. David says, don't be envious of the wicked. People who reject God may seem from time to time to be living the high life, getting what they want, indulging themselves. But you know, at best, it, all it is is a first-class ticket on a plane that's going to crash right into a mountain. If there was a plane and they said, hey, where's this plane going? Well, this plane is going to go up to 30,000 feet and then the engines are going to die and it's just going to plummet and crash into a mountain. You want a first-class ticket? Of course I do. No, you don't want to ride that. Or if you had a time machine, you probably aren't going to go and buy a ticket on the Titanic, right? No matter how nice the ticket is, no matter how good the you know, accommodations are, you think, well, this is a ticket to nowhere. This is a ticket to destruction, right? At best, the wicked there have box seats in a burning building. In fact, this is the end of their road. David continues in verse 2, for they shall soon be cut down like grass and wither as the green herb. David takes us to the conclusion of these things, and he says, look, the, the grass is just going to be cut and burned. This is an image that Jesus would use in the Gospels. And while our tendency, you know, as human beings is to sort of be envious of that grass. You know, we talk about the grass is greener on the other side. It's, it's interesting that, yeah, David says, yeah, it, it may seem greener, but guess what? That grass is just gonna be cut down and burned up. And by the way, he's gonna say, you're not grass, you're a star. You wanna be grass? God wants to make you into a star. I mean, think of the immense brilliance, the lasting majesty, the incredible power of our sun, right, compared to your Bermuda grass in your backyard. That's not a comparison. That's not even apples and oranges. I mean, they're, they're so far apart and different and, and incompatible in thinking that it, it, it would just be silly to try to compare the two. But David is going to say that. He says, you're like the the sun shining in the noonday when God gets a hold of your life. Don't be envious of this Bermuda grass, this crabgrass over here that seems green for a moment. It's really quite an adjustment of perspective. Verse three says, trust in the Lord and do good, dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. In the Bible, to trust God is not to be passive or to just agree intellectually with what God has said. To trust God is an active lifestyle. It's a willful pattern of thought and behavior and choice. James discussed this in his letter where he talked about genuine Christian faith. And he says, hey, look, faith isn't faith if it doesn't have works. He says, look, faith without works is dead. And that doesn't mean you work in order to get faith. He's just saying, uh, you know, you're trusting God. If you really believe God, if you really trust him, biblical trust is an active thing. It does things. And here David says the same thing. We must trust the Lord. And if we trust him, we're going to be doing good, he says. And so the question is, okay, well, then what is good? The Bible, of course, is full of instruction on that topic. But this psalm is a great place to start uh, to, to learn about what does it mean to do godly good in our lives. Because uh, we're going to have at least 20 different imperatives of ways to do godly good in our lives. Not to earn salvation, not to prove to God that we're worth you know, being one of his people, but because our trust in God moves us to action. 
because we behave in certain ways according to what God has done for us and is doing through us. And so when we are looking uh, at, the, you know, at a verse like this or when we're looking in the New Testament where it says faith without works is dead, well, what does that mean? What does it mean to have a faith that works in a biblical way? Well, start here. David explains in detail what it means to go God's way and how to live out this godliness he's talking about. And he gives us two, item, two items right off the bat here in verse three. He says, dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Of course, to dwell in the land had a different context for the ancient Jew than it does for us, but you know, the principle still applies to us in the church age as well. Dwell here is the word tabernacle. Tabernacle in the land, or it could also be translated be a neighbor in the land. And this is immensely practical even for us in the church age, right? Where am I? Where do I find myself? In what community has God placed me? In that community, okay, well, how can I worship the Lord as he tabernacles with me and I tabernacle with him? How can I be a good neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Of course, these are all topics that are familiar to us as we've gone through the Gospels, right? These are things that are all dealt with by Jesus and the apostles in the New Testament directly. One great example of what David is talking about when he says dwell in the land for us is when Jesus told that parable of the 10 servants. He says, hey, look, this nobleman came and he called his servants and the nobleman was gonna go on a long journey and he told his servants, do business until I get back. And it's the same idea that we occupy whatever land we find ourselves in, dwell and develop and serve, just as David writes here, dwell in the land. And then David says, feed on his faithfulness. And what a lovely image that is. I really like this verse, 37 verse three. Feed on his faithfulness. That term means to graze and to pasture on the Lord's faithfulness. And we, of course, can't help but think of David's most famous psalm, Psalm 23, where there God leads his people and we follow him to green pastures and we receive what he gives as our good shepherd. He takes us over rock and hill and through valleys and all of that, and then he, he brings us right to where we need to be, and he says, okay, graze here for a while. Be fed and be sustained and find rest here. Be nourished here in this place that I've decided we should stop. We aren't to go off and forage on our own, right? We, sheep aren't hunting animals. They're grazing animals that are led by a shepherd, and we follow our shepherd, and we feed on his faithfulness toward us. That term also means that we are sustained by God's truth. We think of Jesus emphatically saying what to Satan? He said, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. We feed on the truth of God by going to his word and taking it in and applying it and believing it and allowing it to rule over our lives. To feed on God's faithfulness also assumes that we live our lives in such a way that there is opportunity for God to show himself faithful to us. If we just think about what it means, hey, feed on God's faithfulness. And then do we say, well, I don't ever give God an opportunity to be faithful to me. I just go my own way. I do my own thing. I don't walk by faith. I don't live by faith. I don't take steps of faith. I don't trust God with my finances. I don't trust God with my life plan. I don't trust God with my relationships. Well, David says, hey, you need to feed on God's faithfulness. That means following where he's leading, allowing him to show himself faithful through all of these different types of circumstances. These are ways that David gives us right away for us to do good. He says, hey, do good. Here's what that means. 
dwell in the land and feed on the Lord's faithfulness. And there are many more ways to follow, but scholars point out here that when David says do good, that term good is a very broad term. It, of course, includes moral goodness, but it can also be simply defined as joyfulness or being pleasant or being delightful. I love that. And so David is also saying, hey, trust in the Lord and be joyful. Uh, Be as pleasant as you can be as a child of God and as a Christian. The Christian life is meant to be a delight. In fact, David says so in verse four. He says, delight yourself in the Lord and he shall give you the desires of your heart. To delight in God means to be refreshed in him and to take a high degree of satisfaction in him. It can even mean to pamper yourself in him. Uh, any of you f- familiar with the term that was made popular a few years ago, treat yourself? Ever, anybody heard of that? It's made popular by the show Parks and Rec- Recreation, but it would pop up on memes and shirts and things like that. But David really is saying this in the language. He says, hey, treat yourself in the Lord. You take a high degree of satisfaction in your relationship with God. Now, If we're honest, some spiritual disciplines in the Christian life don't come all that naturally, right? Sort of like eating kale. Some people like to eat kale. The rest of us are normal and don't want to eat kale, right? Uh, No matter how good it may be for us. But if we're honest, some aspects of the Christian life can sort of be an acquired taste. And the good news is that like in real life, you can acquire a taste for things in your spiritual life, right? Just so you know, a 2010 study showed that uh, kids who tried a vegetable they didn't like eight or nine times did begin to like it more. That's just for you parents out there. So just keep shoveling it towards them. But listen, maybe there's some area of the Christian life that you've been feeling like the Holy Spirit is encouraging you to make a greater part of your routine Uh, but you haven't quite acquired a great taste for it, right? Uh, Let's take one that is really easy because none of us naturally have a a taste for it, Uh, praying for our enemies. Not praying against our enemies, but the Bible says, hey, pray for your enemies. Okay, no one naturally wants to do that. That's an acquired taste. But the Bible demonstrates, and David is saying here that he says, hey, look, you maybe just need to go and, and acquire that taste by choosing to delight in that, by choosing to say, you know what, I should, and so I will, and then finding that the Lord works on that sort of rough edge of our heart and gives us a taste for something that perhaps we didn't have before. Many of you who are saved later in life, I, I imagine that when you were young and someone said, do you want to get up uh, on Sunday morning and go to church? Maybe you laughed at them. Maybe you scoffed at them. Maybe you mocked them openly for it. And now guess what? You're like, man, I, I got to get to church. That's the kind of thing we're talking about here, to delight ourselves in the Lord. David would encourage us to keep going back and partaking and discover the satisfaction that God wants us to supply and that these things are worth the effort because this verse here comes with the incredible promise that if we delight ourselves in the Lord, he will give us the desires of our heart. J.J. Perrone writes this, delight yourself in him and you will choose and love that which he chooses and loves. Therefore, he will give you your heart's desires. God, it also is a challenge, frankly, for us to think about our heart's desire right now. If in the quiet of my heart, I ask myself, okay, what do I really want? 
If God appeared to me like he did to Solomon and said, what do you want? What would my answer be? Are my desires of lasting eternal value or are they some sort of dried up grass that are about to be tossed in the fire? I think that's a good challenge for us to think through. David now goes on to explain that godliness isn't only enjoying God, it's also embracing his command over our lives. He says in verse five, commit your way to the Lord, trust also in him and he shall bring it to pass. Herbert Lockyer writes this, the Hebrew says, roll your way upon the Lord as one who lays upon the shoulders of one stronger than himself a burden which he is not able to bear. Perhaps the apostle Peter was humming Psalm 37 when he wrote, cast all your cares upon him for he cares for you. You know, the idea of a God who unburdens his followers is so foreign to the human way of thinking Think of all the gods of man in these false religions throughout time. The gods of man heap fears and miseries and obligations on their people. Not so with our Lord, our Savior, who daily bears our burdens, Psalm 68 says. Now, when David tells us to commit our way to the Lord, it's more than just asking God to help us out. Help me. Help me, Lord, today. I'm committing my way to you. That's not really what it means. He means to surrender the direction and the destination of our lives to him. You know, when you get in the car and ask Siri to get you directions to the place you want to go, Siri's helping you out, right? Say, hey, Siri, I need directions to the zoo. And then Siri gives you what she thinks are good directions to the zoo. And then I think, yeah, I'm not getting on the 43 that way. I'm going to get on the 43 the way I feel like getting on the 43. Recalculating. Yeah, that's right. You recalculate because I want to go this way. Well, that's not the arrangement with committing our ways to the Lord. Instead, it's more like you just get in the car and you say, okay, Lord, where are we going? How do you want to get there? I'll go every turn you want me to go at the speed you want me to go. We'll get to whatever destination you want us to get to. That's the idea. And um, following the route that's laid out for us no matter what. As we learned in our Sunday morning studies in Nehemiah a few weeks ago, sometimes that means taking a trip through the refuse gate or through a valley gate in life. But we can trust our good shepherd and we are commanded to follow him this way. He says, yeah, this is the deal. That's the way you're supposed to follow your shepherd is what the Bible tells each and every one of us, believing that he will bring all of his good intentions to pass in our lives. And while we don't know specifically what tomorrow might hold as we walk with the Lord, we do know the overall plan. Look at verse six. He shall bring forth your righteousness as light and your justice as the noonday. God is fashioning and forming you into the image of his son that you might be a bright shining light to this world, a light that grows and intensifies as it continues to be formed by the Lord. Verse seven, rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. It can be hard for us to stay content in the promises of God, especially when a lot of waiting is involved and when we're being distracted by other people around us. Certainly, the wicked can be a distraction, as David points out here. But, you know, even comparing ourselves with other believers can be a big distraction uh, in a bad way. We remember when Jesus was talking to his disciples, and he was talking to Peter. He's like, okay, Peter, here, here's the road that I have carved out for your life. And what did Peter do sort of in that moment of distraction? He said, what about this guy? What about John? And Jesus said, hey, what's that to you? That's not your business. Don't worry about that. 
You need to concern yourself with you and me, is what Jesus said. When we become distracted by comparisons or by the activities of evildoers, it's no good for us. It simply robs us of contentment and rest that the Lord wants for us. Instead, David encourages us here by reminding us of what God is doing and by reminding us of what happens at the end of the story. And these reminders are meant to continually calibrate our thinking and keep us in that rest that God wants for us. As we rest, we wait patiently for the Lord. And to wait here means to hope for and to look eagerly for and to expect him. The theological word book of the Old Testament says, waiting with steadfast endurance is a great expression of faith. Verse eight, cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret, it only causes harm. This is the third time we've been told, do not fret. You know, to be commanded by the Holy Spirit in the Bible just once is enough, right? We don't need to be commanded 50 times, okay, I guess God means that. I mean, if God gives us one time a commandment, we're to obey it with everything that we have. But man, three times in such a small space, that should make us sit up and take notice. God is serious about this. The word for fret here in this psalm means to be hot or kindled up about something. Don't light a fire in your life about this is what David's saying in one sense. You know, ours is an angry culture. We're quick to get all heated up about things. The Bible tells us to stop being so angry. It just does. And David is very clear here. Cease from anger, forsake wrath. These are commands sent from heaven to you and to me. Well, but what about righteous anger? Jesus cleared the temple after all. And while there are legitimate reasons for truly righteous anger, like the anger Jesus displayed when money changers were wickedly extorting and barring innocent worshipers from the temple, listen, if we're honest, the things we get angry about rarely rise to that level, right? I know the things I get angry about, they are not on the same plane as what we see Jesus getting angry about. Being angry about some cultural or political issue really isn't on the same par as people defiling the temple of Jehovah in the presence of the Son of God. And so we wanna just be careful about that kind of comparison. I know that for me, this verse right here was a great reminder that anger is not a fruit of the Spirit. I may want it to be, it may feel good going down to be angry a little bit, but it's just not a fruit of the Spirit, it's not. In fact, it's something that we're told in both Testaments to remove from our lives. Get rid of it. Forsake it. Paul suggests in Ephesians 4, we shouldn't be mad about something for even more than 12 hours, right? He says, hey, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Get rid of that stuff. David says here, it only causes harm. Anger just simply isn't part of the new nature God has given us. It robs our rest. It distracts us from enjoyment of our relationship with Christ. It will distract us from evangelism. Because listen, if we're feeding the fire of anger towards some person, that's not gonna make us want to love them or reach out to them with the gospel. It makes them our enemy. It makes us combative towards them. You know, even the unbelieving world understands the destructive power of anger. What did Emperor Palpatine say to Luke Skywalker at the end of Return of the Jedi? Give in to your anger. With each passing moment, you make yourself more my servant. And that's by some nut, fake, Buddhist George Lucas guy who's like, yeah, you shouldn't be angry about stuff. And in the Bible, it comes to us, it says, hey, you have a new mind, the mind of Christ. You are a new create, cre creation. You got to get rid of anger. 
We got to purge it from our lives. I love being angry. It's like my, one of my favorite hobbies. But, you know, the Bible just says here, you, we got to get rid of that. David once again reminds us of the fate of the wicked in verse 9. For evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. So as the song continues to unfold, David will continue his construction and comparison. We'll be going through it the next few weeks. For now, we're invited to think about our future inheritance, the Lord's intentions for us, and the invitation that he extends through us to those who do not yet believe. Those are people God doesn't want to perish. He wants to save them. He wants to satisfy them. He wants to transform them from grass into bright, shining stars. Rather than burn in anger or in envy, we have access to the generous delights of a growing relationship with our God, the one who is forming us to shine like stars forever, the one who gives, who goes with us, the one who is coming quickly. Amen?